Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is... Clive Thompson, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you very much, and uh, it's good to speak with you, Tim. So, um, for the benefit of people who are not familiar with you, would would you care to give us a quick pricey, a quick bio for our listeners, please? Uh, Sure. So, I've worked, uh, I'm retired now. Uh, I worked for 47 years in wealth management. Uh, My clients were high net worth individuals, typically uh, several millions uh, of liquid assets which we'd manage. And uh, I retired about two years ago, and I'm enjoying my retirement, looking up the financial markets. Uh, uh, I'm talking with a lot of people about their wealth management, a bit like a retired doctor. You, you, When you retire, you still get people coming to you with their health problems. And uh, in my case, they come to me with their financial problems and their inheritance problems and their property issues and things like that. So it's great fun, and I'm enjoying it very much. You, you claim to be retired, but I'd, I'd suggest that retirement has given you an extra an extra burst of productive capacity because I, I i see an awful lot of you on linkedin in particular uh, that's correct is i i decided after i retired to join linkedin i wasn't on linkedin during my life i wasn't really looking for a job and i thought well let's see what this linkedin thing is all about because a lot of my colleagues at work were on linkedin and i thought i'd join up um one of the things i discovered on linkedin which i had no idea existed where there were a lot of people posting their blogs on all kinds of uh, interesting things, financial matters in particular. And I had for years been sending out emails to my clients. Uh, I used to call it daily themes. And I'd just write down whatever came into my head and send it to my clients. And I got a lot of positive feedback uh, over the years from um, the the funny thing was it extended far beyond my clients because a lot of them would then forward it to their friends and they'd get emails from random strangers saying, can you add me to the list? So when I discovered LinkedIn, I found that was a quite a good forum rather than sending out emails, which, you know, everyone hates spam, if you like. Uh, I could post it there and those who want to join and follow me can read whatever they like and uh uh, it's been a great medium, uh, so that's why I'm on LinkedIn now, and I—that's uh, the only place I post. Have you discovered uh, Substack yet? Uh, no, I haven't uh, looked into that. Tell me all about it. No, all I'd say is, I mean, if for someone who's—I mean, on my third Twitter account now, and there'll probably be a fourth when this one gets cancelled. But for people who previously spent time on Twitter, Substack's a rather wonderful grown-up alternative. So, Substack seems to lend itself to long-form commentary so it's, it's much more sort of blog related rather than sort of TikTok videos and there's um uh, most of the stuff there you can get for free but I, I do subscribe to one specific service which is a service called Doomberg which is basically energy specialists um because their stuff is, is well worth paying for but absent that um you'll find that this Substack has a very healthy and thriving financial commentary community and it it, it, it so it serves Possibly much like LinkedIn, it serves two purposes. You can you can market one can market one's own offering, but one can also just absorb, you know, the best ideas from other people. Which is so it's, it's a wonderful replacement for conventional media. It sounds pretty good. I'm going to investigate it as soon as this is finished. I'll look into Substack and, of course, the uh, blog that you described, which is called Doom Doomberg. Doom, yeah, Doomberg is a a contributor on Substack. But the reason I mentioned Doomberg is Doomberg was originally solely on Twitter, but they've they've cancelled any ties i think with twitter and gone solely to substack so substack's become a very thriving sort of commercial community in its own right 
Yeah, I, I, I was on Twitter at one point. I've kind of given up on it. it, it I don't like it anymore. It's, it's not to everyone's taste, but then you could say the same thing about much of humanity, I suppose. So oh, you've obviously spent a, a fairly extensive career in wealth management. What would you say are the, are the biggest, most important learnings you've had from that experience? Since a very early age, it was very apparent that inflation is not actually caused by people raising their prices, but it's actually caused by the increase in the money supply. Um, and I think that was a lesson I started out giving uh, many, many decades ago to my clients. Uh, the, the world, since 1971 at least, has entered into a world where governments can print money with complete impunity, and it's a bit like sand on the beach. There's more and more and more of it. And what that does, it devalues the currency, which basically means that everything you can buy is going to cost more, whether it be equities, property, gold, or works of art. Um, so the lesson I gave to my clients was, this is what I'm here for, to help you get your money put into other things than the ongoing devaluation of cash. And I think that's the number one lesson. Of course, there's uh, hundreds more things that you you get, pick up over the over the decades, but I think that was kind of where I started. Um, I think if I talk about where we are today, the, the the message is the levels of government debt around the world in the Western countries, the developed countries, are already beyond the point of no return. Uh, the debt levels are expanding and they're expanding too fast. And I think that something uh, is going to break at some point, uh, certainly in the next decade, and it wouldn't surprise me if it's the next few years. So it's it's an area where I think people need to be aware that something will happen and they need to take action with their assets to avoid getting hurt when something does break. You've been very vocal um, from my own experience in talking about CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. In your view, is there any way of escaping this? Because it seems like the most disastrous, tyrannical thing that could possibly be imposed on a, on a market. The CBDC... Uh, potentially will be programmable. When I say potentially, I mean, it is programmable. Uh, some governments are saying they won't use that power uh, and they won't be spying on you. Uh, they won't be uh, using all the other uh, abilities which come with a CBDC. So first of all, let me just explain what a CBDC is. It's the central bank digital currency, which will be issued by governments. There's about 100 and over 100 governments. Anyway, I think maybe 120 governments are working on developing a central bank digital currency at the moment. So those that CBDC, when it comes out, will be a liability of the central government, which makes it very different from your credit card or your bank card or your bank account, which is a liability of your bank. Uh, in that respect, it's a safer asset than your assets in, the assets in your bank because it's a bit like having the bank notes in your pocket. Nobody can take it off you unless you spend it or it gets stolen from you. But it, it's not like the uh, there's no counterparty risk. It's not like your bank where if your bank was to fail and the government didn't pay out under the guarantee scheme, uh, you'd have lost your money. Well, with the CBDC, at least on the surface, because it's a liability of the government, it's going to be a very safe asset. But it comes with lots of potential downsides. And the downside is the program, program, programmability of it and the surveillance which could go with it. 
Now, the government have said they're not going to, the UK government I'm talking about here, and some other governments have said the same thing, they're not going to use it for that purpose. But, you know, it's a creeping, uh, it's a creeping thing. You know, in the early years, I can imagine they will need to use it for anti-money laundering purposes. They'll need to watch what people are doing with their money. Um, they will need to check on uh, imposing sanctions on people who uh, have committed barbarous acts and uh, or governments which have committed barbarous acts to stop them using their CBDC or at least uh, uh, your, the, your country's CBDC. Um, and I can imagine there will be situations where they say, you know what, uh, we think that this terrorist group is plotting something, so we'll block their account. And um, whatever your view of terrorists is, uh, that's an early step to them controlling the population because that could move into the next phase where they say, uh, we're also dishing out social security to people and some of them are spending on alcohol or gambling and we want to stop that. So we'll program our CBDCs that we give them to, to them so they can't spend their money on anything other than food. And, you know, it might get into the situation where it gets a lot more controlling than that, where they say you've traveled too much this year, therefore we're going to limit how much you can travel. Uh, that already, I understand, is the situation in China for certain people who've got a poor, a low social score. Um, so it, it could become, over time, little by little, very dystopian. Um, so from a you know, from a personal perspective, I don't think it's going to affect me. I'm quite old. I'm 67 years old, and probably it'll take some years for these sort of dystopian uh, controls to come in. But it will affect the younger people, and uh, I would worry about my children, my grandchildren. So for that reason, I'm not very much in favour of it coming into existence. But on the other hand, I'm kind of resigned to the fact that we can't stop it. What about the element of <clears throat> if if uh, the government issues CBDCs, they effectively won't be able to print money in the same way that they do now, um, or they shouldn't be able to. Do, do you think that's a potential sort of counterweight to them actually issuing it? And I, we, we've discussed this kind of this subject quite a lot on the show, and um, my view of it is that they, if they they are going to bring it in and they'll bring it in during a crisis, which will be no choice at all for people. You're, either your bank account will go to zero or you accept CBDCs. I don't think naturally people will decide to take it because it's kind of a one-sided thing where it's benefiting them and not necessarily benefiting individuals. So it has to come in at a time when people are forced to do it. And if you try to do it any other time, it might not work. But I just wondered about whether you thought about that other element, A, a when they might bring it in and, and B, um, if it is similar to other cryptocurrencies with limited supply, aren't they then shooting themselves in the foot when they decide that they want to print more money to um, solve their debt problems, which inevitably will start again? Well, CBDC can be printed in infinite supply. So it's just like the banknotes of today. They'll be able to increase the supply at any time. So the central bank digital currency is not at all like Bitcoin, where the supply is hardwired into the system and can never be increased beyond 21, Bitcoin, 21 million Bitcoins. In the case of the CBDC, if the government or rather the central bank decides that it's appropriate to issue more of it, and they will have to, and they, that will happen, I assure you, uh, they will be increasing the supply just as fast as they're increasing the supply of money in circulation at the moment. So uh, 
from an inflationary point of view, the CBDC will not offer you any inflationary protection whatsoever. Um, it'll be just like the money you're carrying around in your pocket today. It, in other words, it'll buy less year after year. And so what do you think they will do to prevent people doing the obvious and just buying Bitcoin instead or, or perhaps other currencies that haven't decided to um, issue a CBDC? Or say well, the like Swiss, Swiss franc, for example, which is a, a much more stable and, and risk-averse currency to buy anyway. Um, I'd like to think that we live in a free society, at least free with some restrictions, and the ability to invest your money in whatever way you like will continue, um, as has been the case uh, for many, many decades now. Uh, I, I don't see why they would need to restrict you investing your money. Um, of course, in an extreme situation, you could imagine there is some kind of bail-in where they say, you've got money, you have to invest it in our CBDC or more likely our government bonds. Um, but I don't think uh, we're going to see that kind of restriction. So for those who choose to take the punt, uh, there's no reason why they couldn't go out and buy gold, silver, Bitcoin, stocks and shares, or or Swiss francs or, or dollars or whatever currency they happen to take their fancy. Um, I'm quite happy about that uh, flexibility continuing. Um, now, of course, there'll be uh, potentially anti-money laundering rules, and there will be some different rules in different countries. Uh, so it is possible that some countries might decide that some of these assets are threatening the local economy uh, because people are selling their local currency, which is being printed, and therefore they want to stop you doing it. So they're going to stop you uh, spending your currency on all kinds of things. And you know that might uh, not only extend to Bitcoin and uh, gold and silver, but it might extend to toilet rolls and uh, and food, for all I know. So what was your first experience with the markets? How did you get into them? And what what's your method of analyzing them? Great question. Well, uh, back in the early 70s, when I was a, a, a teenager, uh, below, well below 18, must have been about 14 years old, my father, um, sorry, my grandfather had gone into hospital and my mother took me to see him. And he had a little book, an exercise book, in which he had written down the names of the shares he owned one page every day. And on each page, he had the name of the share, the number of shares he owned, the price, and the value of that holding. Then he added up the column to get the total value of his portfolio. It wasn't very much, four or five thousand pounds. But at the age of 14 or 15, it was absolutely fascinating to me to see not only did the price of each share change every day, but also the value of the holding changed and then the grand total change. This was like this is like an Excel spreadsheet of today, but it was just absolutely blew my mind. And I was determined to find all about this. And I immediately uh, played with my mother a game called Bear, Bulls and Bears, which was a stock market game. And by the time I got to 18, um, I'd saved about 500 pounds. And uh, in those days, you, it wasn't uh, the, the stock market was not for the uh, uh, for the boys or even for the man in the street at all. Uh, it was a gentleman's game, and I wasn't by any means any of that. Um, but I uh, I wrote to the stock exchange because apparently you couldn't really go out and get a broker's account in those days and they wrote back and they said here's the name of two stockbrokers who are still accepting clients which was very condescending of them so i managed to get <laughs> I, I managed to get in touch with one of the stockbrokers and bought my first stock which was a company i believe it was called eglinton oil and exploration or something like that um uh, anyway i 
then I was, I was told by the stockbroker that, I mean, I didn't have any way of choosing a stock. I was told by the stockbroker they discovered the world's largest ever oil field. This would be about 75. And you may remember in 1975, mm-hmm. every dot, every dot com of 1975 was an oil stock. That was the, that was the gold of 75. Um, so the way you got somebody to buy something was to tell them that you found a company which had found oil and that was the way to get rich very quickly. Uh, so I bought this oil, and then I read the Financial Times every day for the next two or three years looking for the oil find that they'd found, because apparently, according to the stockbroker, they'd found the world's largest oil field in Venezuela, which was a nice, safe country back then, not, not so today. And uh, after a, I watched the share price go down, it was going down, you know, hate near a quarter of a penny a day. And after a while, it might have been... 12 to 18 months later, I rang the stockbroker again and said, what's going on? I've been looking in the Financial Times every day and I can't find this story about the oil field. And he said to me, oh, uh, Mr. Thompson, I'm very sorry about that. Um, After you bought the shares, I got a call from the directors and it turns out that it was water, not oil. Oh, my God. Uh, He said, 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 but there's some good news. Uh, Apparently, they've now found some oil, either under under the water or whatever it was, and uh, you can buy some more shares on the cheap. Because, of course, the shares were a lot lower by then. I think they were about 35p. I'd paid 50 uh, originally. Uh, I said, well, I haven't really got any more money, so I didn't buy any more. And I continued to watch those shares. Uh, there was never any news. And they gradually withered away over the next few years. And I think they finally expired at about one sixteenth of a penny. It's almost as if stockbrokers can't really be trusted, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, the, the, back in 1970s, you know, the old adage, there's nothing so good as a tip. Well, tips were to a penny back then. Uh, you know, if you if you had the good luck or bad luck to meet a stockbroker in the pub, uh, every single one of them had some inside information, inverted commas, because it wasn't really inside information. Uh, but, uh, you know, everybody did have a tip. And the, uh, my experience, not one of the tips I ever got ever made a penny. Yeah, that's uh, that's echoed from what i've heard and from what i've heard from people saying about tips that they've got they never ever turned out to be correct and usually it was a ruse to try and get people to buy shares as they were going down but so i I thought you were going to say there that you bought the stock and when they supposedly found this oil find it went through the roof and 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 that was great so um that could have put you off for life watching it go down and you could have been quite disheartened but it seemed like it was in your blood from day one playing this balls and bears game so how did you recover from it uh well i continued to buy in the early years british stocks uh, as i was living in the uk and then uh, later on i'd moved to switzerland and i could then from via switzerland buy international stocks um, but the the one thing I discovered was that uh, it took me about 18 years to discover this. It's not like you start investing in shares and make some miraculous discovery immediately. Uh, but one of the things I discovered were the wonders of share valuation. I read all the books by uh, ben, ben Graham uh, and uh, uh, Jeremy Siegel and others, uh, some great books which uh, on investing. And I learned a lot of lessons. And then I started to apply these principles. But in general, uh, the way you make money in stocks, and I know a lot of people will disagree with this, but the way you buy stock, uh, buy stocks and make money is to buy things as cheaply as possible. And by cheap, I mean cheap relative to the cash flow or cheap relative to the price earnings ratio. Uh, of course, it's 
important that you get some growth for what you're paying. And there is a very good multiple that people use, which is called the PEG ratio, P-E-G. It stands for price earnings divided by the growth. And the theory is, if you can find a stock with a price earnings ratio divided by the growth, a PEG ratio of below one, you found yourself a real bargain. Um, now, these days, you won't find many stocks with a PEG ratio below one, uh, but it, it, it's a sort of principle which you could apply along with many other uh, lessons I've learned over the years. But perhaps I'd give another lesson, which is perhaps the greatest lesson everybody should pay attention to, and that is you can make the most money if you go looking in areas where nobody dares to tread. So over the decades, there's often been moments when certain areas of the world or certain industries have looked like disasters. Uh, I give you, I'll give you a few examples. Uh, for example, in uh, 1987, we had the stock market crash where stocks went down about 30% in a day. Um, Iran had just declared war on America in retaliation for uh, American bombing one of their oil rigs. Um, we had American interest rates going through the roof. Uh, we had a falling dollar at the same time. Uh, and it was all looking pretty disastrous. Uh, the um, stock markets were looking fairly shaky. I mean, they were, they'd been at records a few weeks before, but they were starting to come off fairly fast. And then we went into a weekend, uh, I think it was Friday, with the stocks down a lot on Friday. And over the weekend, we had a hurricane in the UK. That's uh, right. Which were you in the basically, UK? Uh, I was in Switzerland at oh, that time. Oh, right, yeah. The trees but were down that day. I remember that's it. That's right. So, so nobody could get into London to work. Um, the stock exchange was effectively closed. I mean, it was open, but there was nobody there to do anything. Um, and the faxes over the weekend, because people were worried about New York opening on Monday uh, with a massive decline, the faxes had been piling up from all around the world in, into London saying, sell at the open. Uh, but these faxes were piling up on the on brokers' desks, and they weren't at, at work. So, uh, oh my God. so you, you can imagine what happened when New York opened. All hell broke loose, and the stocks uh, basically at one point they were off about thirty percent on the day. And the same thing happened in London the next day. Uh, so it was an absolute disaster. But those who had the courage to go and buy this uh, would have done very, very well because that was actually the bottom. And uh, I, I know there was a lot of negativity around because people said this is the Great Depression starting all over again because this crash was far bigger than the stock market crash of 1929. And therefore, people said it's foretelling a huge recession. But of course, that day would have been a great day to buy and you could have held literally forever and made a ton of money. Um, that's one example. But another one would be in, I think it was 2000, uh, no, 1997, we had the Asian currency crash. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you remember that, but yes. basically interest rates in the United States were going up. Many companies out in Asia had borrowed US dollars and they were being squeezed by the higher and higher interest rates and being squeezed by the rising dollar. And that was denting their profits. So a kind of panic set in as companies started to try and cover their positions, which basically meant they had to uh, they borrowed dollars, they had to buy dollars, pushing the dollar even higher. Um, and what this did, it effectively broke the peg. Most of these Asian currencies were pegged to the US dollar in some way, shape or form. It broke the peg for almost all the Asian currencies. Uh, the only one which managed to save itself was Hong, Hong Kong. Kong. Yeah. 
Um, but we had, for example, the Indonesian rupiah down 30% and the Indonesian stock market down 30%. Uh, Malaysia and uh, other countries and Philippines were all down. Um, and I thought this might be a good time to go looking for something exciting in Indonesia, crazy as I was. <laughs> so um, as it happened, um, I uh, I found a company which was called uh, Metrodata. Uh, it still exists today, by the way. Uh, but at the time, what they were doing were making... Uh, computers, they were taking the, you know, the hard drive, the motherboard, um, and so on, sticking into a box and selling it on behalf, or not selling, uh, making it for the company called Acer Computers. Uh, they were on a price earnings ratio of one, and they didn't have any, uh, they didn't have any debt, which was quite interesting, but their share price had crashed along with the whole of the stock market at the time. And I hung on to it for uh, a few years. And before I sold it, uh, this would be about 1999, uh, they released a press release saying they wanted to become the largest internet service provider in Asia. Now, nobody had a clue what an internet service provider was, uh, but we all knew the word internet was magic because anything with the word internet in it went to the moon. And that's exactly what happened. And I finally bailed out of it at about 40 times what I put in. So a couple of questions there. What you're talking about is effectively contrary opinion theory. And yes. that's one of the most stable kind of, um, no matter what your discipline is, everybody says that's a very good way to approach markets. But you're also talking about punctuations of a long-term trend. And there are very few and far between opportunities that happen to buy at those points. Um, two things come from that. What do you do in between and what made you decide to sell? Was it the opposite of the feeling that you had at the low when there was all this despair and, and the sentiment was completely 180 and you thought, well, this can't get any better now for this particular stock? Um, because the temptation is just to do what Warren Buffett does. And once you've bought something at such a cheap price, hold it forever. So really, there's two questions there. Yeah. Uh, 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 one, one is what made me sell, and the other one is uh, uh, do these opportunities, uh, are they very rare? Well, Or, I can, I just, or what do you do I'm in really, between, really? Because it's like yeah. so, so um, you're not going to get a crash like that, you know, very often. Well, so what do we do now kind of thing? I'll, 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 I'll start by answering the second question about the, the in-between. The, the, Almost all of the time, there's something somewhere which is out of very out of favour. Uh, but I'll come back to that in a second to give you some examples of more recent times, which you'll understand. But let me just tell you about the the the, the pressure to sell. So you can imagine this. We I held this stock for several years, and it was rising strongly as the Indonesian stock market recovered and the Asian currency stabilised. And of course, we were going into the internet bubble as well around that. And it was very hard to go to work every day and not press the sell button. But there was a lesson we learned back then that if ever you sold a stock which had anything to do with the internet, it would immediately double. And those were the days when most of the dot-com type stocks, you know, companies, which I did own at some point, like Sun Microsystems, they were splitting, or Cisco, another one I can think of. These companies were having share splits every six to 12 months. Uh, and, you know, as soon as they split, the share price would be back to the old price. So you you were doubling and then quadrupling and having eight times your shares with 
uh, at the same price. So you're making four, six, eight times your money um, simply by sitting on things. So the pressure uh, or the lesson people were learning was if you sell a dot-com, you're, you're going to get screwed because it's going to go, the price is going to go up on you. But of course, it, it was a bubble. And these companies were popping up like mushrooms in the night. Uh, you know, you... There was no sense to most of the dot-coms. They had no revenues. Many of them had no revenues at all. Um, and those which did have revenues had little in the way of earnings, usually nothing at all. So it was an awful lot of hope and speculation in the market. And I, I remember those days, uh, I was sitting at the desk, I was working in the private banking, and we had um, clients who were rigging up to buy the latest new issue all the time and so we'd put in you know he'd say a client would say i want to put in for a million on this stock or that stock which is a new issue and we put in for a million and then we'd get typically none none at all and the clients would say what's going on why did i get none my you know my friend at blah 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 bank got five thousand dollars worth of shares and i got nothing and, and but the, the trouble was that every bank and every is broker around the world was trying to buy these new issues and these new issues on day one would always go to massive premiums sometimes more than a hundred percent uh so you can imagine the the mania we were were in uh there was a website i don't remember the name of it now but would which would publish every thursday at a certain time of the day uh what they called their hottest tip of the day in the in the dot-com sector and there were lots and lots of people pressing the refresh button on their computer to try and see what this stock was. Then they'd ring their broker or and say it would someday would happen to our bank and they'd try and buy the stock and you'd end up paying two or three times the last price just to get this because everybody in the world was buying the same stock at the same time. Uh, so it was absolute madness. Uh, and that's so what, what, coming back to why did I sell? Uh, I knew this was madness, but I also knew it was madness to sell. So I was going into work and resisting the temptation to press the sell button. And at some point, um, the stock was up about 50 times what I'd paid for it. And I said, okay, if it ever gets back to 40 times what I paid for it, discipline, 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 sell, sell, sell. Um, and one day I came into work and there was about 40 or 39 times what I paid for it. And I immediately sold it and exited with uh, as near as makes no difference, 40 times the, the money, which was a really, you know, it's probably my best profit ever. Uh, I don't usually do that. <laughs> it was a very small amount of money, I hate to say. Um, so um, whilst it gave me a lot of capital to buy some more stocks, uh, it was, we're talking very small numbers here. Um, it didn't make me a millionaire or anything like that. Um, I wish I would have put more with hindsight. Uh, but that was the that was the media we're in. So that, that was why I sold. Now, let's, let's come back to the opportunities of today. Um, at every moment in time, there's always going to be some areas which are out of favor. So I'll just give you a, a few small examples so you can get a feel for what a, what sort of things I'd be looking at. Um, two years ago, or was it a year ago, a year and a half ago, we had the invasion by Russia of Ukraine. And the knee-jerk reaction was most firms made it uh, impossible for you to trade in Russian stocks or Russian bonds. And many firms wrote their Russian assets down to zero. Um, so I thought it might be a good idea to go looking in the UK investment trust market for companies with exposure to Russia, whose share price would undoubtedly be down a lot because of holding Russian assets. And I found a, a couple 
uh, one of them I'll mention the name, uh, but because you can't buy it now, so it's, I'm not making an investment recommendation here. Um, it was called J.P. Morgan Russian Securities PLC, which was a UK-quoted company, which happened to have the majority of its investments in Russian companies. And they'd taken the decision to write down the value of all of those stocks, all of those Russian stocks, to zero. So we had a, uh, before the evasion, we had a share price of seven, six, seven pounds with a net asset value of seven, eight pounds. Uh, after the invasion and after they'd written it down to zero, they'd written the net asset value down to 35 pence and the share price had had gone from six pounds down to 45 pence. Now, they still own those Russian assets and it's a bit of an option on Russia uh, if you're willing to take that punt. But the only thing they had left according to the valuation uh, or with any value was uh, some Kazakhstan shares and a couple of things like that and some cash. Uh, but it seemed like a good punt uh, to me and anybody who would have bought those shares uh, would have uh, been able to exit a few months later at, at well, at least double the price. Um, by the way, the company, uh, they did then change the name of the company. Uh, it's called something completely different now. So if you go and look, it, look for it, you won't find it anymore. Uh, but they changed the name of the company and they've changed their investment policy. So whether it owns Russian stocks or now, I have no idea. Um, but that's an example. But there was another company um, in the Netherlands. It's the largest internet investment company in the world. It's called Process NV. It's a it's an investment trust. Uh, they owned a company called Mail.ru, and because they owned that stock, which was less than one percent of their portfolio, people decided they didn't want to have anything to do with process. So they sold the stock, and the stock went down a lot. Um, I think I bought it at around forty-five euros on the way down. It went and it's it carried on down to about thirty-five euros. Uh, I don't know the price today, but it's probably up about sixty or seventy euros because they got rid of the Russian security and now everything's hunky dory. People can buy it again. So what what can we buy today? Well, uh, a few months ago, um, it's not so cheap now. But if you go back a couple of months ago, the real estate investment trusts were extremely cheap. And the reason they were streaming cheap was because interest rates were rising, and that meant that uh, especially commercial real estate, uh, were, a lot of it was worth an awful lot less. But when you looked at the, uh, when you looked around, you would be able to find, and you have to do a bit of donkey work here, you'd be able to find companies which had a portfolio which had a lot of value. They didn't have much borrowing, if any at all, and they were trading at a very large discount to what was probably, in some case, or what was, well, it wasn't probably, which was, in many cases, an already written down value. And so I would, I don't want to say the name of the company because I don't want to get into investment advice here, but uh, in one example, I found a, a UK real estate investment trust which had been uh, a couple of years ago, had a net asset value of about £9. It'd be written down to £7.50 as things started to go sideways. Uh, then they wrote it down to about 5 60 Then they wrote it down to about 5 40 um, Then they came oh, 30 or something like that. Then they came out with a presentation uh, saying that they expect to be earning about 6 or 7% in rental and having a 3% a year increase in rental levels because the rents are below average or below market rents. Um which they thought would generate for their clients on the new reduced NAV, something like nine to 11%. That's oh their number, God. not mine. Goodness me. 
rich, uh, return on the new NAV. That was their expected return. That was, you know, in, in a presentation in September, so a couple of months ago. Uh, now, what was quite interesting, whilst they've written the share price down to about five pounds, the share price, the shares were trading below three pounds. Now, there's something you have to understand about leverage but if you could buy an asset which is worth five pounds and it increases in value by let's say 10 percent for simplicity or the underlying increases in value by 10 percent that would be uh 50p if you bought it at two pounds 50 well you've got a pounds increase you're so whilst the average investor might be getting uh it, whilst the nav might be going up by 11 percent based on your share price you're increasing not by 11 percent but more, more like 17 or 18 percent so one of the things that to look out for uh, in the market in general is when you can buy assets or shares way below the market value, any upside which comes either in the form of an increase in dividend or in the form of increase in earnings per share will have a leveraged effect on the value of your holding. So that that's an example of something which was definitely available a few months ago now just to uh, uh, say the, that opportunity is not available as well today because the shares in the real estate sector, the real estate investment trust sector, have risen very substantially. Um, but when you look around, there'll always be moments in history when something is looking pretty out of favour and unattractive. And you've got to ask yourself, are there bargains to be found? If you go hunting, you might find them. So what do you use for your news flow? Uh, do you look at the FT or because you have to go off the beaten track to find opportunities like this? They may not necessarily be presented on the headlines of the news wires that we see. You'll never find it on the front page of the Absolutely. newspaper. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you have to be truly alone. When you invest, you have to be the only one. Everybody else has to be selling. Uh, you know, that's that's how you could get a bargain. Um, and I also want to say that bargain is not to a penny. You you want, uh, I have a diversified portfolio and most of them are pretty ordinary companies doing pretty ordinary things and none of them are, almost none of them are bargains. But I, I'm constantly looking literally every day and sometimes several hours a day looking for these opportunities. And you've got to have your head around what what's, What's looking attractive? Where should I be looking? Um, I'll give you an example of something which I haven't uh, looked hard enough yet, because but it's the uh, pharmaceutical sector. That's a very cheap sector at the moment. And another one which is very cheap is the automobile sector. Um, if you look at the major Western automobile companies, uh, or Chinese ones for that matter, and I'll, that's an, I'll come back to China in a second, um, in the automobile sector, you will find valuations which just don't seem to make any sense. They are way too low. So the, what's what's happening here? It's kind of, these the, the prices are so low. It's almost like the companies are going to go out of business. But when you look at them, they've got uh, and I won't say the names, but you, anyone can find them. They've got huge cash flow. They've got high dividends and growing dividends, and they're cutting costs left, right, and center, and they're uh, embarking on the latest electric, electric cars or whatever the latest fad is. So uh, that's a sector which is absolutely and totally bombed out. And again, if you can buy, um, if it, the, well, you, you can buy these shares, uh, these types of shares at a fraction of the book cost. You can buy them at price earnings ratios as little as five or lower uh, sometimes, uh, with dividend yields sometimes up at 8% or more. Uh, you know, 
these are the sort of, this is a sector that nobody wants to touch because everyone's saying, oh, cars are dead. We're all going to have self-driving cars uh, in a few years and there won't be a need for so many cars. But I don't think, I personally don't think the number of miles being driven is going to go down much. And I also think that an awful lot of people don't want to put their bum on the same seat as someone else has put their bum. They want to have their own car with their own things in the car, with their own devices. They don't want necessarily to be buzzing around in a, uh, a self-driving car. Now, there will be a lot of young people who will do that because they can't afford their own car. But I think a lot of people will just say, you know, thanks very much, but I want my own car. I think you're absolutely right. I think for public transport, perhaps, but there's nothing like the convenience of your own car. And like you say, everyone's has a personal requirement. Some people have got families, so they need a four by four or a bigger car. And some people are, are single and just want to to go out and show off to their friends or maybe, you know, attract a partners with their car and get something faster and flashy. It's absolutely right. What about the um, the airline industry? I was thinking about that the other day and how it seems like there are so many more people flying at the moment, and yet a quick look at the share prices of some of the airlines, they, they don't seem to have responded yet. Well, the time to buy the airlines was when COVID was hitting and nobody was flying. You had to take a view as to which ones would go bust and which ones wouldn't, but the share prices in the COVID ep epidemic were, pandemic rather, they were absolutely decimated. Now, the share prices have have recovered a lot, and they're they're much higher than they were, uh, but they're still very very cheap by valuation standards. But the reason they're cheap is because everybody's wondering if there's not going to be another incident, and uh, and there all there often are incidents in the airline industry for ranging from ac from accidents through to terrorism through to obviously we had the pandemic, and who knows what could come next. And of course we've got the other thing which is um, worrying people a lot, which is the the potential for the carbon rules kicking in in some way um and, and that's where perhaps uh, cbdc's might play a role in a sort of dystopian way in the future uh so there, there's a lot of uh concerns about the airline industry so it's not right now it's not a place i'd be looking i'd be but i would be looking if uh something does happen to cause the share prices to collapse again in the way that they did uh during the uh pandemic So all this talk of um, cheap valuations, Tim, that must have uh, that must be pressing buttons for you. It, it, it is. I mean, the fact that Clive mentioned Ben Graham and I immediately make the sign of the cross and genuflect <laughs> is um, <laughs> says says everything. Um, I was, I'm especially intrigued by the uh, the thought strikes me that these these principles are very easy to articulate, but they're actually very very difficult to um, deliver on in in the real world. So. My question to Clive would be, how much of the investment game would you say is behavioral or psychological versus mathematical? Because I think it's quite high. If you're playing at the cheap end of the market, it will take time for the psychology, which is negative towards the cheap stocks to change. But over time, if you buy 10 stocks, which are very cheap, and in different industries and in 10 industries, over time, some of them will not look so dull and boring because something's going to happen. Uh, so some will stay where they are and you'll get your very high dividend. You'll just keep uh, rolling along. But there's, 
in all probability, a small percentage of them will be revalued by the market because circumstances have changed in some way, shape or form. Uh, one good example of that would be uh, the end of the pandemic. People started traveling again. But the, the mantra back then was everything's changed. Nobody's going to get on a plane ever again. We're all going to do work from home. We're going to do our video. We're not going to go to conferences. We're going to do everything by Zoom. Um, uh, but kind of in some way, shape or form, um, people are back on the planes, whether it's for holidays or work or what, I don't know. But I think at the end of the day, we've kind of realized that uh, there's no substitute for meeting people face to face. But you, you take the point that people need to be in control of their psychology or in control of their emotions to a greater yeah. degree than most people are actually capable of being. Um, this is the difficulty with most people. Um, uh, people tend to sell when there is a crisis situation because they think that things are going to get worse. Uh, so every year, if you look through the yearbook, you'll find that there were some moments in that year when things look pretty dire one way or another. Uh, I remember a few years ago when we were looking at people in white coats because there'd been an outbreak of Ebola and it had got to America. Now, it didn't spread, but uh, luckily, but the fear was very, very high. And we, we will always have moments when something happens and people's fear is high and they say, what's just happened? The stock market's down 5, 10, 15%. That's the warning. It's going to get a lot worse. Um, it's, what I, it's kind of like what I call the earthquake effect. Um, you know that if there's a, an earthquake, uh, and lots of people die and it's very sad and, uh, and so forth. People are, after the earthquake, very, very worried. And then they'll be afraid of going back into tall buildings and such like. And if you ask them why, they'll say, well, there could be another one coming. Maybe that was the warning. Maybe the bit, the next one's going to be the big one. Um, and it's a, it's a normal psychological reaction uh, that when something happens which causes the stock market to plunge people feel that it's going to get worse than it already is and uh, whilst amongst my clients i would say very rarely did any of them panic and sell because you know but they a lot of them would pick up the phone and speak to me and i was there to sort of say sit on your hands you don't need to do anything uh they'll Every now and then, there would be somebody who would panic and sell out at a loss. And then you'd look at them many years later, they'd still be sitting on the cash waiting for that moment to get back in. And even if the stock market would ever get back to close to the level at which they sold at, they'd buy, uh, they'd be willing to buy. But, you know, people are, I think the world is full of people waiting for that magic day for the stocks to go down. And when they've gone down, they lose their courage because they expect it to go further and then it doesn't. So have you ever thought about writing a book on your method of analysis? I know there's plenty of books that already represent how you, 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 where you could learn from it, but there's nothing like distilling that information and giving your perspective and perhaps even putting a diary of, of, of the investments that you've made. I think that would be a great idea. I, I keep start to tell the truth. I keep starting that type of kind of book, but there's so many uh, holes and stories to go down that you sort of think, which one should I write next? So the reality is, in in terms of having written things, there's lots of pages out there, none of which have been published, and I think one day they should get together in a book. 
Um, can I just come back to something about opportunities of the moment? Because yes, I, definitely. I, I that was kind of a. We'd love that. And I was going to talk about China. The Chinese economy has slowed significantly because the leadership has started making it more difficult to do business. Plus, we have a slowdown in the Western economies and, and less willingness to buy Chinese goods and services. The Chinese property market is said to be in a very dire state. Having said that, the Chinese government is propping up the, prop, the, the property companies and also propping up the borrowers in the, prop, in the property market. So they're, they're taking, there's a lot, I, I, you can read about them, but there's a lot of action that's being taken by the Chinese government in various respects to try and stop the economy from falling into recession. And as things stand, there is a uh, commonly held prediction that China's GDP will grow by about 5% next year, which is, compared with most other countries, pretty fast from China's perspective, pretty slow. The consequence of all the negativity around China is that share prices have fallen and fallen and fallen and fallen. We've had several years now of falling share prices, and they are, by anybody's standards, and certainly by my standards, as cheap as I've ever seen. I've never seen share, shares as cheap as this in my life. Uh, and I'm not saying that anyone should go out and put a lot of money in China, but if you want to look in China and buy something cheap, look at the sectors which are the most distressed. And obviously, the, what, the one which is really distressed is the property sector. Now, I'm not suggesting that I would go and buy a property company because I think that is particularly risky because they may have borrowings. But there are companies which are also severely depressed because they're supplying to the property sector. Um, and I'm not going to say names again, but these would include companies making building materials, making cement, uh, providing property services of various descriptions. And many of these companies, you can buy them through the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, and you'll be getting a pretty high dividend. You'll be getting them in a pretty low price earnings ratio. Uh, because the and and of course we're talking about a pretty low price early ratio on the expectation that the earnings this year will be way down. Uh, but you can look at the analyst forecast, and you'll see that for many of these companies there is a positive. Uh, they expect positive earnings, and next year those earnings are expected to grow at least if you trust the analysts. Now they can get it wrong, but. Um, we're not talking about buying companies where they have negative earnings and where they have high debts and might go bankrupt. But you, you need to spend some time uh, using some filters to find these companies. And you'll find a few companies which just don't make any sense in terms of cheapness. Uh, yeah, they might go bust. But on the other hand, if they don't, in a few years' time, you'll be looking at many multiples of today's price. I, I said, when I say a few years' time, perhaps five or six years' time, you might be looking at two, three times today's price and probably a better return than any other market. For sure. They've had um, deflation, haven't they? And there's no way they're going to let that last. Um, they, they've got to start to, you know, stimulate the economy especially even if they don't do very much it seems like the rest of the world is but you know humming along quite nicely so demand for goods which i think during the you know the the recent years that stopped because of supply line problems will all just start to come back again you know but i think the temptation for people to buy or to to source things locally which is a very nice thing to do but when 
it's a bit like what you were saying earlier when when companies um decide that they can do something cheaper inevitably that will be the way to do it we had a a, a gentleman on the podcast who was uh, very bearish on china and it was it was interesting to discuss uh what his feelings were about where it would go and he said he thought that the us would continue to be strong and and china would effectively continue to go down now the shares have can continue to go down but it seems like there's a with the taiwanese share share market that had gone down a lot and rebounded hard and a lot of asian markets you've got um, the Japanese stock market that's pressing all-time highs. You've got the US markets that are bubbling along. You've got the European markets that are ready to break new highs. It's it's a question of even even the um, you know the uh, South American countries are doing uh, relatively well. And if you, I know you have to factor in the currency into that. But if you take all that and then look at China and, and Hong Kong and say what's happening there, there has to be some kind of lift. Um, it from the global economy to you know start putting money back there and and you're asking that question now and I think it's it's a very relevant one that it may go down a bit more but how much can it swim against the tide of the global economy and that brings me to another question about macro it seems like you start with micro and then go to macro or does it depend on you know how you might feel about something do you start with say with china it sounds like you started with ma- macro and then went to mike would then go to micro um so what i was describing when i talk about these special situations are one-off situations where you want to allocate a little bit of money out of the norm the bulk of everybody's portfolio should be highly diversified by country and by industry. So you don't have all your eggs riding on one particular industry or all your eggs in one country. So that that's not macro at all. That's basically diversification. Um, now, I prefer to pick the individual stocks because uh, I, I think you when you look at a country or a, a macro situation, you, you, you know, even in a macro area, there's going to be good and there's going to be bad. There's going to be cheap and there's going to be expensive, uh, there's going to be growth, and there's going to be uh, negative growth. So you, you, if you can pick an individual stock, you can know, um, and I'm, perhaps we should talk about the tools here, but there are tools which can tell you what the expected growth is of the individual stocks. Um, and uh, basically, I like to uh, try and buy things which are relatively cheap, and I don't mean dirt cheap. Uh, when I say relatively cheap, if we take the uh, price earnings ratio in America as being roughly 20, I don't know if that's correct, but let's say roughly 20 and elsewhere, maybe 16 or 17. If you can buy it slightly, uh, those sort of P ratios or below, I think you're doing fine. Um, but it's not, you don't base it just on the price earnings ratio. You look at what you're getting for your money, how, many, how much earnings you're getting for your money, how much dividends you're going to get for your money, and what the company's doing, and what it is which might cause people to become more interested in the share over time. So, Tim, th- this sounds very similar to how I've heard you talk about the markets. What, are there many similarities or are there any differences? Um, I think the only thing so far that we've discussed that I would I would be distinct from Clive is that we don't invest in China on moral grounds rather than on valuation grounds. But that's that's a very personal, that's a very subjective assessment. So I'm not sure it's a fair a fair point to make, really, because, you know, 
one does what one does, and also we're we're in the we're still in the business of like providing professional service, whereas Clive, I assume, is now talking about what he's doing with his own money on an unconstrained basis. So let, he can let rip in a way that we can't. Um, that's right, and of course, from time to time, you have to uh, put your money where your mouth is, uh, but. I, everybody should have some sort of moral concerns and uh, but at the end of the day just because you're investing in a chinese company can it be said that you're supporting xi, xi jinping's sure. communist like policies i, I don't know sure. I, I think a lot of these companies are very capitalist like uh, they're global companies as well many of them um so when i said china companies i was really talking about companies which are quoted in hong kong which are quite often doing business all around the world uh, the one thing that the one thing that does spring to mind is we met a, a Hong Kong-based fund manager a few years ago, and he said if there are a billion, 1.3 billion people in China or whatever the figure is, it's safe to assume that a billion of them are crooks. So there's an element of an element of uh, um, corporate governance um, diversification, let's say, or corporate governance due diligence that's also required. Uh, that's true. Um, I've had uh, one or two situations uh, over the decades where my Chinese share has gone to nothing and there's no recourse. Um, I, I'll give you one example. It was called China, something something like China Metal Recycling. And uh, what, what did they, they do? Well, the they 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 got a quote on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and they were supposedly one of the largest metal recycling companies in China, a very big company. But it turned out that their accounts were all fake um, and the uh, they charged the chairman and the uh, other some other employees with fraud on the, the Hong Kong government did uh, the chairman fled to china and has never been seen since well he has been seen in china but they can't get him uh, they jailed his wife uh, but the shares uh, this was many many probably a decade ago the shares effectively went to zero and haven't been quoted since and the it, the they say even the shareholders will get nothing and the creditors will be very lucky to get anything at all either so basically they'd made completely made up their accounts and and managed to pass it by god knows who to get a well i won't say the name that with passed it by a very large well-known bank mm. uh, and managed to get a quote there was a situation we once were invested in a vietnamese fund and the um the lady that ran the the business which is a saigon based fund management business said uh that could we raise the issue of sort of corporate governance again and she said well there was a time when um, quite recently, where a, a, a local banker had been found with his hands in the cookie jar, and they executed him. And I thought, <laughs> that's, that's a progressive policy. We should see more of that here in the West. <laughs> yeah, so, so, of course, when you don't... I mean, America is the place which is the safest country in the world, and that explains why it's got the highest uh, the highest price earning ratio or the most expensive market in the world. Uh, you get what you pay for as you travel around the world in investment terms. And if you invest in an emerging market, you expect to get something very cheap because the risks are very high. So how far afield will you look for opportunities? And Africa and you know emerging markets, um, Asian, what, what, what would you say is a... Is there anything that's outside your remit? Obviously not because you're you're investing your own money, but... Where would you say, well, I just think that's too risky and I'm not touching it? There are many markets which are actually quite difficult to invest because of local currency restrictions. India would be an example. Mm. Um, 
I, I believe, although you can buy Taiwan shares in America and other places as GDRs, I think it's quite difficult uh, to buy. Uh, you used to be able to buy Taiwan shares in Taiwan dollars, but I believe it's quite difficult these days. Um, and of course, many uh, emerging markets and African markets are effectively closed, as and Middle East as well, are effectively closed to foreign investors. Uh, so when you want to invest in these reasons, the way to do it, if you want to do it, is through a specialized fund. And usually, for most areas of the world, you can find a specialized fund. I mean, I think you've, you mentioned you'd find a Vietnam uh, investment or something like that. So there's a Vietnam fund, there's a, a Brazil fund, there's an Indian fund, uh, there's a Middle East fund. Wherever you look, you'll find a fund or an ETF which allows you to do it. Uh, I don't much go for funds because the trouble with a fund uh, if it's an ETF, an exchange-traded fund, that's a fund which tracks uh, a benchmark index like the FTSE 100 or the S&P 500. If you buy an ETF, you're going to get the good and the bad in the fund, meaning I might like half the companies or a third of the companies, but the other two-thirds, I'm not going to like them. So I'm not much of a fan on exchange-traded funds. Um, actively managed funds ought to be a lot better. But unfortunately, history says they underperform the exchange-traded funds. And the reason for that is fees. So collectively, all the actively managed funds represent what the market is anyway. So collectively, they have to underperform because they got a one, let's call it a 1% fee, which makes it very hard for them as a collection to keep up with a fund manager. But statistics show that even on a one-year basis, less than half the fund managers will have beaten their respective index. And when you get out to five or 10 years, the number who beat their respective index is almost none. So you've got to be very, very lucky to find a fund manager whose promises actually come true of beating his benchmark. I suppose with those funds, they would have all the good and all the bad at the same time of that particular country. And if you're going to take a risk like that, you really want to be buying the the sectors that have the best chance of doing well. And that again, whilst diversification is is uh, is a goal, um, it may be that you that you're going to sort of lose some performance by not being able to drill down to the area that you might actually want to specialize in. In the same way that you're saying, for example. Uh, at the moment in the US, if you were going to buy automobile stocks, um, you have to actually buy everything else if you're going to buy an ETF of the whole index, because if, if you weren't able to to just specialize in that one sector, that's what you'd have to do. So, um, but Absolutely. Actually, I mean, I think yeah. 90, 99% of the people haven't got the time or the inclination to do that, what, that kind of work that I'm doing. Mm. And for those sort of people, I think buying an exchange-traded fund exposed to the sector that you think is attractive is a great idea. Yeah. And and so it's so interesting that you, you've you retired, yet, as Tim said at the top of the show, you, are, you seem to be as active as ever, but is potentially even more active, I, I'm, I'm guessing, if you're doing hours of work for your own research per day. Um, one element about investing, and many people listening to this will be sort of managing their own uh, finances. Um, how does how does one do that in the context of actually um, having their own sort of salary, as it were? Because when you invest like this, it's the same with trading. You can't 
live off it because your money is actually invested in the market. And if you were using it to pay your bills, you're not going to make very good decisions. So it's almost like you have to do it as a secondary thing or become employed in the field that you are interested in and then sort of do your your investments over a long period of time until they can kind of support you, as it were. All my life, I dreamed that by the time I retired, I would have enough investments to generate a dividend income, at least matching what I was earning mm. in, in salary terms. Uh, so that was a goal I'd been working towards for more than 40 years. Uh, and that's what, to some extent, drove me towards the value end of the market, where the dividends are very high. And that did me extremely well um, finding these sort of bargains because uh, the uh, you know I've I've re- achieved my goal. I, I retired at 65. I I actually wish I'd retired at 58 because I could have taken my lump sum pension at 58 and bought myself a higher income stream than I actually could buy at 65. Despite the fact that by the age of 65, my pensions fund had increased in value due to ongoing contributions from myself and my employer. Mm. So the pension fund was getting bigger and bigger, but what it would buy was getting less in terms of an income stream was getting less and less because the stock markets were rising faster than I could put money in. So whilst I was contributing, let's say, an extra 1% or 2% a year, and, my, and I was getting 1% or 2% earnings inside the pension fund, maybe making 3 or 4% increase, stock markets were going up far faster than that over the last decade. And uh, so I should have retired earlier and, and bought myself a larger income stream. Uh, but for the average Joe, he doesn't have time to do this. So if he really wants to... Um, have an income stream to live off. And that's very important when, you know, you, you talk about trade, you can't eat from trading. You have to have income and dividend income is the way to eat. Uh, there's plenty of uh, exchange traded funds which specialize in income generation from equities. Uh, for example, I'll, uh, I'll name two types. Um, One is typically called um, uh, something, something dividend ETF or, or income ETF. Uh, so that would be the, the the kind of name, and the other one, uh, which is quite li- I, I quite like the name of, is called they're called the dividend aristocrats. Uh, you can find the bike the, the the collection of those by googling. Aristocrats basically invest in companies which have increased their dividend every year for the last twenty years. Uh, that would be in America. Maybe in Europe, they have company, invested companies which have increased their dividend every year for the last 10 years. Uh, so they start with a database. Let's say um, in America, there's 500 companies which have increased their dividend every year for the last 20 years. Then they narrow that down by only buying those which have got the highest yield, maybe buying the top 30 or 50 of the those high-yielding increasing dividend aristocrats. And when you buy those sort of ETFs, you're going to get an above average income if you buy one which has got the name income or dividend on it, or if you buy the word aristocrat um, ETFs, you're going to get one of the funds which have got an objective to increase the dividend every year, and you're probably going to see over time uh, an ongoing rise in your annual dividend, albeit you'll be starting from a smaller level, a lower level. That's a uh, that's a very interesting way of uh, approaching the market. And with regard to what's coming next, um, do you circling back to the the comment about CBDCs, protecting yourself 
Um, would that involve hard money like gold, silver, or other precious metals? Um, and we mentioned the alternative to CBDCs, which are which is Bitcoin. Do you have any opinion on on those two asset classes? Um, yes, I do. Uh, first of all, on LinkedIn, about two or three months ago, I did publish a recommended asset allocation uh, for, as a talking point. It's not what it's not going to be the right asset allocation for each individual. Uh, it's an asset allocation, which I think is a good starting point for discussion with someone who's got some wealth that they want to invest. Uh, but some people will have more in equities and less than equities, and some people will have more of this and that and the other, depending on their needs, their income needs, their age, their family, and, and their ability to withstand fluctuations. Uh, and many people haven't got a very high ability to withstand what they call, or fluctuations, what we call volatility. So that would mean perhaps a safe approach than what I put in my asset allocation. But just to sort of summarize quickly what I put there, um, I thought that 60% equities was a good starting point for discussion. And in terms of gold and silver, uh, I did put down 6% to gold and 6% to silver. And in terms of Bitcoin, I put 2% um, expecting to have the highest return from the Bitcoin part, uh, expecting to have a, a fairly decent return from the gold and silver and equities. Uh, but I'd also had an allocation to high yield bonds and uh, things like that and cash as well, uh, where I expected to have zero returns, all things taken into account. Um, I, when I say zero, I mean zero inflation adjusted re returns. But you need to have some low volatility assets for the purposes of emergencies or cash needs, or uh, you, you just never know when you're going to need some money. Or may maybe there's a stock market crash and you want to put more money into the stock market. Oh, I had exposure to real estate investment trusts too in my asset allocation. I, I forget how much that was, but it was probably something like 10 or 12%. When you say high yield bonds, do you mean bond like American or, or say UK companies that have got uh, high yields, or would you be looking more at emerging market um, sovereign bonds or companies? Um, these these would be a corporate bond uh, ETF. Right. Uh, so a corporate bond ETF is one which invests in. Uh, they they would have a name like HYG or high yield growth, uh, high yield well. That, that's a symbol actually for one of them. Um, it have a name like uh, blah, 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 high yield ETF. Got you. Yeah, right. I see. Yeah. Um, because there, there could potentially be quite a few to choose from in terms of high yield. Um, and the risk profiles are, are massively different. That That's right. I mean, the, the, there's a, I would just basically buy the biggest you could find. So you go to look at the ETF sector, you will find uh, those types of funds. You'll find corporate bond funds. You'll find high yield corporate bond funds. Look for the look at the size of the ETF, and when you find the largest of them, that's probably the one to go for. And in terms of a stock market crash, uh, there are people out there who think it's you know imminent and. Uh, to the point of sort of now, and there's some that say it's a few years out. Um, where, do, where do you sit in, in, with regard to predicting or trying to predict something like that? Or, or do you just don't do it and just wait for it to happen and then act accordingly? That's a good question. Um, in my career, I've probably seen five or six 
crashes. Uh, people could describe them in different ways, but of course we had one as COVID started in March 2021, I believe it was, um, when stocks went down a lot for a couple of days before they started recovering. Um, there have been many around. Now, although I've seen five or six, I think in my 47 years, I've probably seen 47 crashes, but are predicted at least once a year, and it's always going to be the year we're in. So you'll never get to a year where someone and lots of people aren't predicting crashes, and some of those who are predicting the crash will have a track record of having got it right in the past. Uh, I haven't yet seen anyone who got it right twice, um, but there are the perpetual bears out there who say, look, I called the bear market in da-da-da, which you actually didn't hear them say it at the time because you didn't know them but now they're uh, on the television or wherever it is saying or the or the tv station is saying here's mr so-and-so who predicted the bear market of 1987 or whatever year it is and now he's predicting it's going to go down again i don't take any notice of that because it's it's a shot in the dark in fact i think what what i can say is the chance of the big right is about one in three because uh, the market's when people make a prediction, it's either going to go up or it's going to go down or it's going to stay where it is. Uh, and I give equal probability to each of those scenarios in the short run. So I don't really take any notice of those people who say it's going to go down. Of course, I would take notice of markets being overvalued. And I do not think they're overvalued at the moment. Uh, but overvalue or, uh, overvaluation or undervaluation still doesn't tell you the next move. Uh, we mustn't forget, um, we've been through sometimes decades of what seems like overvaluation. So you can be, you can come out of the market thinking things are too expensive, which might have happened, for example, in 1994, um, when price earnings ratios were getting extended, the interest rates were going up. Uh, and if you'd come out in 1994, you'd have missed out one of the best, you know, the next six or seven years bull market, one of the greatest bull markets in all of history. Uh, I think I, I, I'd be very cautious uh, about being out of the market. So what's more important for me is having a steady hand. And you can tinker around at the edges if something looks like it's got a little bit too overpriced or uh, you don't like the prospects because they've disappointed you in terms of their earnings report, then you can move on and buy something else. But uh, I would not make a rash change in my portfolio. I wouldn't suddenly go out and sell 10% or 20% of my portfolio uh, because I think things are going to get worse. Because uh, my view is they might, they might not. And um, it'd be awful to be in cash. And we'll come back to the risks of cash in a minute, but it'd be awful to be in cash and then find the stock market runs away from me and I can't bear to buy back in. I'd rather stay in and, and keep my steady exposure at the same percentage, which I, as I said, is about 60% is kind of where I think one could stand in equities. That reminds me of um, what I've heard from Tim, where you say you're invested in things that, um, in a similar way to Buffett, if the market closes, you'd be quite happy. Is, is that right, Tim? Yeah, absolutely. The other thing is, and I think Clive's highlighted it, it the, the problem with market timing is it may, after the fact, turn out to be the right decision, but it leaves you with just as difficult a decision, which is when to go back in. And as as Clive said, that it may be for many people, they never do. So they completely miss out. Yeah, I've never met anyone who's been successful at calling the top and the bottom. And actually, calling either of them is pretty difficult. You've got a, in a, in a single year, you've got a one in 365 chance of getting it right. Uh, so I, I wouldn't like to be the guy with the sort of uh, trying to beat those odds. I think Nancy Pelosi's got quite a good record of um, stock stock dealing. 
whether that's in terms of market timing or not, I think it remains to be seen. <laughs> Which is her portfolio's done magnificently. We we could do with a Nancy Pelosi ETF. Um, there's a lot of people who uh, watch channels like CNBC and uh, Bloomberg and say you should just do the opposite of whatever the commentators are saying. It's Jim Cramer is normally deemed yeah, the, the, the demi the I, demigod of 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 adverse. Adverse market I think, reaction. I, I think somebody might even. I, I, maybe I didn't read this right, but I think someone's brought out a Jim Cramer uh, inverse fund where they do the opposite of everything he says. What you want is a five times levered inverse Jim Cramer. <laughs> uh, that would be absolutely great. So, if one of your grandchildren said to you, "What do I need to know about the markets? Where do I start?" What would what what would you do? What would you? What books would you give them to read? I know the books that you mentioned that you read at the start, but have they have they changed? So I've just gone. So, I, I just stepped away here to bring up a few uh, books here, which I've got. I mean, I've, I've got so many. What, one of the one of the greatest books I ever read uh, was called "Against the Gods." Peter L. Bernstein. And it's a story about gambling or probabilities, but it's a great education uh, for thinking about stock markets from a probability point of view. So I'd recommend that. Uh, obviously, The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham uh, was one of the greatest books. Um, I don't have all the books I've read in my in front of me or in my head because I'm afraid memory is fading sometimes. But uh, before we had the internet, and uh, so on. Uh, that's what we did, used to do. We used to read books, and I read a lot of them, lots and lots. I mean, I have probably got uh, 40 or so of the uh, famous books on investment, like The Little Book Which Beats the Market, or I think it's called The Little Blue Book Which Beats the Market by Joel Greenblatt is another one which comes to mind. It's a nice, easy book to read. It's quite small. Um, but uh, there's a whole series of books in that series, which are the names of which I've forgotten. Little, the little red book, the little green book, the little blue book. Um, but if anyone can Google the top names, uh, the top investment books are really the ones to read. One of the most enjoyable I read was the um, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator by... Uh, Edwin Lefebvre. Yeah, that's right. He, it was about... Um, Jesse Livermore. That's right, who was a guy who became a literally a, what the equivalent of a billionaire and then several times over and then lost it then became a billionaire again and finally he lost it all and committed suicide do you know who wrote the forward to that book the most recent one tim price did you really he did it's absolutely amazing tim well done okay yeah well thank you very much it's a fantastic book and uh, my wife is reading it at the moment so um yeah well done yeah so I, time time's winged chariot moves on uh, i'm conscious that you know time is short so is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to have discussed during this chat Clive? yes i i, I think there's a, a, a relevant point about cash um there have been moments in history all around the world including the united states when Cash has gone down a lot. And those have been moments when the stock market has done the opposite. 
So you only have to look at the performance of the Argentinian stock market or the Venezuelan stock market to see it's up at the clouds. And the reason is because the currency is going down. But let's take the United States as a, a special example. Back in February 1933, I think it was, President Roosevelt closed the banks for two weeks because there was a bit of a run on the banks. This was before he banned gold, by the way. When the when the stock market opened, it had the biggest one-day rise in all of history. Uh, it's no, that, that rise on that day has never been beaten since then or, and was never beaten before. And it went on to have, a, a, the next few months, to have a 100% rise. And the reason it did that was people were worried about cash because the banks were, you know, although they'd been shut for two weeks and then the, they reassured everybody that everything's going to be all right, people started to get worried about cash and they ran for other things and the stock market was the place to go. But let's move on to a year later. Well, we, we all know that in April 1933, they banned the use of gold and made everybody hand in their gold and we'll move on from that. But a year later, in January 1934, they passed an act which uh, I think it was, it was either called the Gold Act or the Banking Act 1934, one of those names, uh, which effectively sequestered all the gold which belonged to the Federal Reserve in exchange for lawful tender, lawful tender being bank notes or, or Federal Reserve notes. So the Federal Reserve, in exchange for its gold, was obliged to hand over its gold and get in exchange dollar bills, which were exchangeable into gold at the fixed rate of the time, because each dollar contained a certain number of grams of gold. I, I haven't got the figure exactly. Let's call it 50, 55 grams of gold, uh, not grams, grains of gold, 55 grains of gold. A few days later, after the Federal Reserve have got this, had this lawful tender of United States dollars, which is exchangeable into gold, theoretically, Roosevelt issues a national order which reduces the number of grains in a dollar bill to approximately half what it was. So basically, the Federal Reserve, who was the only person who now owned the gold in America, found itself gypped out of its gold to the benefit of the Treasury. Um, to, it was gypped out of about half its gold because the each dollar bill it still owned, the lawful currency, now contained half the amount of gold from before. Now, of course, that, then they got chipped again, or we all got chipped again in 1971 when President Nixon declared that each lawful currency dollar contained zero gold and the dollar would trade freely. And the gold, of course, then uh, took off from $35, which it was at the time, to where, where are we now? Nearly $2,000. So when my point is this, when these th events happen, uh, and we can look back at history, the stock market is certainly one of the places which it benefits. Um, on that day, uh, when in 1934, when the they devalued the effectively devalued the dollar by taking out the uh, reduced number of grains of gold in it, the stock market once again took off. Didn't last for long, but it did. Um, that's my uh, my point. So people can um, you know, be aware that if you own cash, you might find it suddenly devalued overnight without warning. That's I've heard that somewhere before, Tim. Indeed, mm. it's a bit of a mic drop moment. Indeed, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> Tim, was there anything else you wanted to ask before we go to media picks? 
nothing nothing to add though nothing to add I, I notice is actually the um the catchphrase of the late and lamented charlie munger and mm. i would just i would just cite a quote that i heard from charlie munger which amused me um during the last week someone uh, he was talking to an american executive who asked his advice about sharing bad news with with people sharing problems with people and his response was Steve, don't don't share your problems with people. Ninety percent of people won't care, and ten percent of people will be glad that you have them. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing! Charlie Munger knew a thing or two, thing or two about human nature. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, Clive, uh, have we encouraged you to finish the papers and complete them into a book? I hope so. Uh, it would be fantastic for you to to come back on the show and tell us that you've you've completed it, and um, we could share it. I'll, with write, I'll write the foreword for you if you like. Uh, that would be very nice, Tim. Uh, <laughs> as I say, the book in a way is kind of written; it's just got to be put together. Uh, when I started thinking about this, I re- I realised it shouldn't be one book; it's got to be about six books because uh, one of the you know the, I think the stock market is inextricably linked to gambling. And I don't mean the stock market's a gamble, but everything you do in life involves weighing up the odds. Uh, and when I think about it, uh, throughout my career, I've come across in, in all kinds of ways uh, gambling situations. I talk about here. I'm now. I'm talking about casinos. I'm talking about uh, ho- uh, poker. I'm talking about uh, bingo. Uh, and, and there's all kinds of things which have happened throughout history, which have shaped the way I think about the world, and make me realise that uh, when you, you you never know when you're doing something if the odds are stacked against you by somebody who knows something you don't know. Absolutely. Um, the, the book that you mentioned against the gods, Tim's I've heard Tim mention that a, a good few times. I, I'm not sure if I've actually got it uh, or not. I'd have to look, have a look. Cause similarly, I've got lots of books. Um, and I think the, the thing is with, with, these books is so interesting because you might read it once and then come back to it years later and read it again and then see it in a completely different way and see more information in there than you saw the first time a bit like watching a film for the second time and you pick up on all these other things that you might have missed the first time round. that that to me is one of the most intriguing and interesting things about learning about the markets there's so much to learn and anybody who ever says that they've they've learned it all is, is, is either, you know, a liar or, you know, Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) Yes. So it's just such a fascinating area. And, um, so with regard to the, the, the media picks, you, you put up a few books on screen. Some people won't be able to see those because they'll be listening online, but I'll put links to the books that you that you showed us in the show notes. Should we just leave that then, Tim, as the media yeah, pick? That, that would that would be fine. That'd yeah. Be fine. Otherwise, we might end up with too many. So, Clive, look, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's such a pleasure. It's really interesting, and um, as as you can probably tell, we'd love to love you to come back in the future. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure to be on your show. Um, and uh, yeah, I wish you uh, good success. And uh, what do people have to do if they like your show? Is there a like button or what, what's the story here? Well, that's that's a really interesting point. And I'm glad you've asked that because you... Uh, sh- where is your show? Well, it's, 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 it's on all good podcast platforms. So you can find it 
pretty much everywhere. Um, and if you're able to write a review, um, that that would be on whatever podcast platform you're using, that would be great. It can um, even be a favorable review. Yeah, it could be. That would be nice. Um, so, you know, occasionally somebody might complain that they didn't like something in one of the episodes, which is, I think there's, there, you make a good point about how can people sort of express their views because you, you, you want people to have an interaction, but by the same token, if somebody doesn't like one thing in one podcast and there's, you know, 180 of them, it does seem a little bit harsh to get a bad review from one comment, but I guess that's the nature of it. So really just wherever you listen to your podcasts, um, you'll be able to write something in there. And, and equally for people who would like to, uh, communicate with you, uh, get in contact, I'm guessing you're not doing the Twitter thing because of what you mentioned before, but you're definitely on LinkedIn. Are you anywhere else? Uh, no, I've given up on, uh, certainly not Facebook <laughs> and, right. and Twitter, I've given up on. Uh, so LinkedIn, if people would like to get in touch with me, uh, I write a lot of articles, two a week at least, maybe four a week. Um, so look on LinkedIn, you'll find my articles. And uh, I've got a, a non-stop stream of people who write to me every day saying, my uncle's just died and left me a house. What do I do? Mm. Or things like that. I'm quite happy to give you an opinion. Oh, wow. Um, just a, can I just fire a question at you guys, uh, as you're very much into podcasts, which platform do you think is the best for people who are listening to podcasts to use? What would you use? What would you advise? Well, I, I think it depends on what uh, particular phone you might have or how you're going to listen to it. I think Spotify, I've, I, I really love Spotify because they are – Swedish and independent and they they don't censor which is why the Joe Rogan podcast is on Spotify and it's not on YouTube anymore so um, if you've got an Apple Apple iPhone you can listen on um, on the podcast app from Apple uh, and then then there's lots of others that you could potentially use but the Spotify app is desktop and it's also you can download it for, onto your phone as well and it's free. And, you know, the, I, I think that's possibly the best way because then you can choose to look at the video as well, which you can't do on the others. Excellent. Well, I do have uh, have been using Spotify for podcasts, so I know of it. I was just, uh, uh, but of course, there's Apple and a few other things which I've tried as well. So I don't have a personal preference. I don't listen to them very much, but uh, thank you for that advice. I will now home in a bit more on Spotify. Fantastic. Well, Clive, thanks once again for your time. And um, we look forward to speaking to you again. And Merry yes, Christmas, you, Clive. Compliments to Merry Christmas to you. to you. Yeah, thank you very much. And the same to all of you. Um, oh, and <laughs> just a, a funny thing. You said, what would I say if my child asked me what to invest in, my grandchild? I'd say, I'm very surprised you could talk so well at the age of one. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Clive. All the very best. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.